All right, so um, I figured it should be the Christmas story today. So um, we'll go to Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're going to drop in at verse 6. While they were there, this is while Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there, were, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Something ordinary was going on in Bethlehem. Uh, a woman is giving birth to her first child, a son. Uh, she's young. She's made a long journey, and she's far from home. So I suppose she, she doesn't have the well-known midwife of Nazareth. She has uh, the second-string midwife of Bethlehem, uh, but now she caresses and nurtures this, this new life. She, no doubt, is fascinated with every detail, every dimple on every tiny little knuckle. But I wonder if at the same time she's holding in her awareness the presence of the supernatural. You know, because after all, this whole experience began supernaturally. And I wonder if in this moment she's able to hang on to that or if she's preoccupied with her exhaustion and the busyness of taking care of this new life and the ordinariness of it all. What is supernatural about this anyway? I wonder, has she momentarily forgotten the encounter with the angel and what he told her and how he explained this birth? I wonder if she can remember all of that right now. Meanwhile, in the same region, Luke says, something extraordinary was going on. This is in the fields just outside of Bethlehem. Now, if you lived at that time and within that culture and you were to make a big announcement, it is extremely unlikely that you would make it to shepherds. Um, they were not well-respected. They, they pretty much had a bottom-rung occupation. Um, they were considered uh, ne'er-do-wells because, uh, like here they are at night, they're not home with their family, taking care of their wife and children. 
they're out in the fields with the sheep. They're considered thieves because they will allow their flocks to pasture in other people's fields. I mean, there's all kinds of problems with, with the shepherd at that time. And uh, even in the Bible, they would be unlikely spokespersons for God. I mean, they're not priests or prophets after all. But in the heart of God, they were the perfect candidates for this message, which, which again is lovely for us because who am I? Um, if God has something really, really special going on, why would he share it with me? Well, there's no reason to. He's got all these big-name televangelists that he talks to all the time. He's got, you know, he's got the private phone number of you know, the megachurch pastors. So, so why me? I'm a nobody. So I'm just out in the field someplace. I'm not in the inner circle. Um, I'm not even on the margin. I'm somewhere beyond that. So, but God loves shepherds. Some of the biblical heroes that we admire were shepherds before they became prophets, priests, or kings. And what God loved about them was their care for their flock. You see, God had little interest in leaders who used people to create armies, to build empires, to enrich themselves. And Israel had had plenty of those types of leaders. No, God wanted um, a leader who who knew how to be a shepherd. In other words, the shepherd's primary concern was for the welfare of the sheep. You know, it's it's something. I guess I need to qualify this. If you are a caring parent, how your children, when they come along, knock the selfishness out of you. You know, I want to sit and watch TV right now. Oh, that's right. They need baths um, this evening. Oh, and they need to be fed, too. There's that. Um, they, they, needed, they need to be tucked in. They need to be prayed for at night. You know, there's that. And by the time you're done with all that, I don't even feel like watching TV. I'm just going to bed. Uh, and, and, I, and shepherds were somewhat that, that way also. They had to sleep lightly in case a predator came around in the evening. They had to... Um, Always be concerned about where the next meal will come from. And all of it is for the lives of the sheep. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He'll even, uh, fighting off predators, risk his own life to protect them. Or he might go in search of a lost sheep and uh, endanger himself in the rugged Judean wilderness where there are many uh, cliffs and long drops. A poet shepherd from Bethlehem wrote one time, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside green pastures. He makes me to lie down by still waters. He restores my soul. And, and David is celebrating all the love and kindness that he receives from God, the shepherd. And God is not opposed to that analogy. In fact, God adopted it himself And many times in the prophets, he said that he was Israel's shepherd, and he referred to them as his flock and the sheep of his pasture. So it's it's shepherds who were graced with this revelation when the, the angels broke the membrane between heaven and earth and showed up. And it's fitting because Luke takes special interest in, 
down in outers. Uh, Jesus is constantly associating and getting in trouble for associating with uh, the despised tax collector, uh, the sinners, the immoral, the diseased, uh, you know, the leper that no one should touch because it'd be unclean. And, and by the way, when we talk about the marginalized person in the first century Mediterranean world, we have to include women and children. They too were marginalized. Um, so, the, but this is who Jesus, this is Jesus' group. This is uh, who he finds himself with constantly. And when uh, criticized for it, he says, look, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, it's the sick. And I've come not to call the righteous to repentance. They don't listen anyway. They think they're righteous. But those who know that they need me, those who know that they're sinners, they're the ones who respond. And they're the ones I've come for. So again, this thrills me because you know, I think of my own life and my own neediness and my own wrongheadedness and uh, the, the, the thoughts I have towards other motorists. And, uh, <laughs> and, and God doesn't say, well, you know, you're, you're actually disqualified. Uh, or because of the way others think about you, that forms my opinion too. You know, they've been talking to me about you, um, and it's not good, you know, which I assume. But, uh, but he doesn't listen to that. He, you know, he's, he doesn't form an opinion of me that way. He, he, he loves me, and he loves me right now exactly as I am. He wouldn't have me any different in this moment. As long as I come to him in this moment and present myself as I am. If I try to present myself as something else, he says, oh, really, please, um, or something like that. Or, uh, he'll never say, damn you. Uh, he dare not. <laughs> I mean, because what he says happens, and then he'll never see me again. So anyway, um, anyway, uh, maybe when the, the shepherds barge in on the Holy Family with their story of angels, maybe at that moment, Mary does remember the miracle that her life has become, the miracle that this baby is. Uh, We know at least that she recorded all of these things in the journal of her heart. Introduction over. Now I will come to the point. Um, There are four statements in verse 7 that I want to emphasize, and they are, first of all, she gave birth... Secondly, firstborn son. Third, wrapped him in cloths. Fourth, laid him in a manger. Simple and straightforward, right? Um, it, it, it's all right there. You can see it. It's easy. You'll never forget it if you just go back to this verse. But now I want to jump to the very end of the story that Luke tells. Uh, It's in chapter 23, and there's this man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, interesting character for some other time. But he comes along, and he gets permission from Pilate to take care of the body of Jesus Christ after his crucifixion. So basically, he's going to give proper concern for the corpse. And there are four statements in chapter 23, verse 53, that I want to contrast and compare with Mary 
Joseph's uh, concern for Jesus and Mary's concern. And so uh, it goes like this. He did not give birth, but regarding the body, he took it down. So she's giving birth. He's taking the body down from its perch. Um, This was not his son. Um, In fact, this was not even a person. It says he took it. Um, And it, it bothered me the first time I noticed that in Luke's gospel, that this isn't even the person of Jesus now. It's the shell. And it, it has nothing in it anymore. The self is gone. The spirit has been given up. And uh, it's just inert matter. Like Mary, though, he wrapped it in a linen cloth. And he laid it, not in a manger, he laid it in a tomb. So we have this echo from Mary's actions and Joseph's actions, only she's showing these actions to, to life, to fresh life, to new life. And he's caring for the dead body. Um, I've mentioned this before, and every once in a while it comes, comes to mind. I was visiting someone in a hospital in Long Beach many years ago. And um, as I was leaving the hospital, I got on the elevator, and um, this woman was already on the elevator. And as we're going down, she asked me, do you know what floor the maternity ward is on? And I said, I'm not really familiar with this hospital, um, so I'm sorry, but I think it's on the third floor. And she said, okay, I'll check, thank you. And then, and then she volunteered. I just left the bedside of a friend who died, and now I want to see new life. And I thought that that, that that was beautiful. And so we go here from birth to the death of Jesus. And Luke has taken the same actions from the birth scene and applied them to the death scene. In fact, He's deliberately tying the two ends together. That is his story. Um, that is something that Luke does. Uh, he's very deliberate in, in joining the beginning with the end. Uh, the very beginning of the story begins in the temple. And the very end of the story, the very last few words of Luke, ends in the temple. And, and he wants us to see uh, the connection. It's like uh, bookends. Uh, because if we see the connection, we're going to appreciate something important about his story. Okay, there's, there's something else I want to show you. The shepherds were frightened with a great fear. That's how the, the Greek literally reads. Not uh, terribly frightened. They were frightened with a mega fear uh, when the angels appeared. But they were told about Jesus and that they could find him. Um, And the angel said, there's been born to you a Savior who's Christ the Lord. Um, And I'm sure the shepherds are thinking, wow, that's great, because if anyone needs a Savior. um, And and he's there. He's been born to you, and you can find him. And these are the circumstances. And there are four statements in verse 12, I want to emphasize. 
First, you will find. Second, a baby. Third, wrapped in cloths. And fourth, lying in a manger. Hmm. Familiar now. Um, now, the manger is a perfect landmark for the shepherds. This is something they know about food troughs. They know what they look like. And uh, it also, um, in itself, indicates where they should be looking for the baby. Uh, okay, we can skip the Hyatt. We can skip the Marriott. We can, you know, and uh, let's just go straight to the, uh, the, the pen, the corral, uh, you know, the barn. Again, um, I'm going to jump now to the end of the story. And now it's after Jesus has been in the tomb for three days and women are coming to uh, perform the proper uh, ministrations to the corpse, which includes lots of wrapping and lots of uh, spices and, uh, and lots of loving care. They go to the tomb expecting to find the body of Jesus. And their story is the reverse of the shepherds. The angels, the angel first, uh, appeared to the shepherds and then sent them on a mission. Well, the women were on a mission. Uh, The angels sent them on a mission to find Jesus. They were on a mission to find Jesus already and then met the shepherds. Uh, so it, things happen backwards here. The women came looking, and when they didn't find Jesus, then the angel appeared. And like the, like the shepherds, they were terrified by this. Uh, a cognate of the same word for fear uh, earlier is used here. And again, I want to compare and contrast the experience of the shepherds with that of the women who come to the tomb. The shepherds found their way to Jesus, but the women did not find the Lord Jesus. And that's in verse 2 of chapter 24. What the shepherds found was the baby. What the women did not find was the body. Same verse. The baby was wrapped in cloths, but the women... Uh, I will assume, and Peter certainly, when he entered the tomb, saw the linen wrappings only. Not, not the body. The body wasn't there, but what he had been wrapped in, that was all folded up neatly and was still there. The shepherds found Jesus, as the angels told him, but to the women, the angels said, he's not here. He has risen. You're looking in the wrong place. Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? We can also compare what the shepherds and the women did afterwards. The shepherds made known the statement about this child and went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. The women returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the 11 apostles and to all the rest of the disciples. Merry Christmas. I'm going home. Uh, 
why did Luke structure the story this way? Why was it so important for him that he connect Jesus' birth with his death? Simply put, Christmas does not explain itself. The meaning of Christmas is not in this day or the events remembered on this day. The star, the angels, the big announcement, these were just prelude. The baby is a potential at this point in time, a potential that's nearly wiped out by King Herod. The baby is a potential hope, a potential future. But to know the significance of all of this requires Easter. But why jump to the very end? Because that's the moment that is anticipated in the beginning. That is when Jesus became a savior to us in his death and resurrection. The angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So there's salvation in him. Uh, the angel said, to you is born a savior, Christ, the Lord. Several times in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, we're on our way to Jerusalem. When we get there, I'll be rejected. I'll be mishandled and mistreated. I'll be beaten and crucified. And in three days, I'll rise again. One time, he he even stopped on the road and he said, let this sink into your ears. And he tells him again about his coming death. And Luke says, and they understood none of it. They just stood there staring at him going, "Uh uh-huh, but they're not comprehending. And Luke says it's because they were prevented from comprehending. Well, of course, you're following this this man believing that he's the Messiah who's going to save Israel and he says this is going to end in complete failure. I'm going to be crucified and that will be the end of it. I mean basically that's what they would have heard if they really comprehended what he was saying. And on the one hand they believed in him so much they didn't believe what he was saying. They, okay he means something else. It's a metaphor. You know, It's one of his parables. He, he doesn't really mean what he's saying. And this is one of those times when he's being absolutely literal. So he knows what his life is all about. He knows what the future holds for him. This was his destiny. I've been reading this incredible book. I don't think you would like it so much as I do. It's called Reading the Gospels Wisely. And it's by a a professor of... New Testament, uh, I don't know, Bible stuff. And um, uh, Jonathan Pennington, and he says, the New Testament documents make it very clear that the last week of Jesus' life and his subsequent death and resurrection are the reason for his coming and are the epicenter of history itself. He goes on to say, it is the Passion Week events that bring ultimate insight into all that Jesus said and did up 
to that time. He's saying without the death and resurrection, you can't fully make sense of the rest of the story that comes before. Uh, The other night, Barbara and I were watching a movie that we both had seen. Um, I tend to remember plot and characters better than she does, uh, typically, unless it's a chick flick. (laughs) And then I don't remember anything because I don't watch them. But um, anyway, uh, we were watching this movie we'd already seen, and some friends were being manipulated by one of their group, and they, they did not know that they were being manipulated. When they found out that they were, they mostly didn't believe it, and they certainly did not know who it was. But having seen the movie and knowing which one was the manipulator, I watched him carefully to see if through his expressions or his mannerisms, if he gave himself away at all. I knew he was the bad guy, and I'm watching to see, but why didn't they pick up on it? And I realized that he played a very good poker face through the whole thing, that, that you'd look at him and you, his, his expression was either ambiguous, you wouldn't know exactly what it meant, um, oh no, they're on to me, it wasn't anything like that. It was, you know, uh, so you, you don't know what's, you don't know that it's him. I know that it's him, and so I watch him. In other words, I'm finding more significance in him as a character knowing the end than I knew when I first watched the movie and had no idea who it was. And the same thing happens when we know the end of the story of the gospel. Now we go back and read it and we find so much more significance in everything because Jesus now is this much greater person than than even he, he is when he walks through Uh, Capernaum. This is what knowing the end does for the rest of the gospel. It awakens us to the significance of each event as it's taking place. This is important. Jesus' birth and death and resurrection are not everything. They're the beginning and they're the end, but there's a lot in the middle. Now, it's true that the cross is the ultimate salvation event. And every good Christian knows that, I think. I mean, certainly every evangelical knows it because that's exactly what evangelicalism is. But salvation is more than the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins comes with the cross. But salvation is more than that. Salvation is everything that Jesus did his healing, the the life that he taught, uh, the change that occurs in a person who encounters him. So between death, uh, birth, death, and resurrection, we meet the person in the heart of the story. And we get to observe that person. And knowing something about him now, we watch him more carefully. We listen to hear him better. The whole life story of Jesus gives us so much to live on. Um, What we need to know about the kingdom of God, big emphasis on that in Luke's gospel. What we need to know about the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom of God. And then 
Jesus himself is a full revelation of God, whatever we need to know about God. And this is very important in Luke's gospel and interaction with God. Luke has more to say about the prayers of Jesus than any of the other three gospels. Um, John records the longest prayer, but doesn't show us Jesus in prayer so often as, as Luke does. Luke has us see Jesus praying at his baptism. No one else has that. And he has us um, see, seeing him pray before he chooses his disciples. He's also praying at his transfiguration. Luke is the only one who, who clues us into that. He wants us to see how intimate Jesus is with the Father. So that when Jesus says that he's come to reveal the Father and that no one knows the Father except by Jesus revealing him to them, um, we're to understand how big a moment that is. If we read the gospel as sacred scripture, not, not as a book of Bible doctrines, you know, this is the stuff we've got to believe, not as stories from which we have to extract principles to live by or propositional truth. But if we read it as sacred scripture, in other words, just approaching it, we know there's something special about it and we hold it in reverence and we read it that way. In between the birth and the death, we have an experience of Jesus Christ. Because this person that we're reading about is here with us in this moment and he's unfolding his story to us and he is revealing himself to us and we are encountering him in the moment of the story. I know a lot of people don't read the Bible that way, but I think it's just because we haven't been taught how to read a sacred text. And this is our sacred text and it opens up heaven to us. It it, it opens up a reality in the here and now. And if all we read it is the long, long ago, we're we're missing the most essential um, purpose of of the scripture. The purpose that that serves to bring transformation and, and make each one of us a new creation in Christ. Joel Green, in his book, Reading the Bible as Scripture, I, I say sacred text, says, in the world disclosed by scripture, the impossible and unthinkable and nonsensical are made possible, become the stuff of wisdom and flood the senses. Who can forgive 70 times seven? How can the last be first? Who can make friends with the poor? Who can overcome without taking up arms? Only those who are already in the process of reimagining the world in terms set out by scripture. Only those for whom reality is framed by scripture, who see things as they really are because their patterns of thinking, feeling, believing, and behaving are being sculpted through their ongoing encounter with the whole of scripture. It is coming to the Bible as sacred scripture, that it works in these ways in us, reframes our worldview and all the constructs and, and paradigms of our thinking and feeling 
and hoping and longing. Okay, all I have left to say is this. If you can remember, the first thing tomorrow morning, exchange gifts with your Heavenly Father. And he will give you a Savior, the Messiah, the Lord. And you can give him your whole self, all your heart, all your mind, all your spirit, all your strength. And then once you've exchanged gifts with your Heavenly Father, go on and enjoy yourself the rest of the day with whatever else you've got to do. Would you stand, please? May the Heavenly Father who conceived the idea of Christmas and rested it in the coming to us of his own Son show us the most wonderful truths about this season. May the Lord bless us, keep away all evil, and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.